So I have never been um, what you call a film buff. Uh, I was once part of a film group. Film group. Um, I was like initiated into this world of film that uh, was really entirely new to me. These films that were artsy and names like Fellini and Kubrick and P.T. Anderson and things like that. And some were good and some were just boring. Um, uh, eventually I had to... Uh, I had to quit because um, of all the nudity. Seriously, I didn't know that art film was actually code for for graphic nudity, but somehow it is. Um, So uh, before I jump ship, though, I was introduced to some really good films. And one um, is a film uh, by Andrei Tarkovsky, some Russian guy, um, 1979 film called Stalker. Now, despite the title Stalker, it's not an action film like you'd expect it to be. Um, It is uh, this bizarre dystopian world that you enter into, and it starts out is uh, sepia tone. And you enter into this world, and you follow these three guys, uh, Stalker, Writer, Professor, and they, they have this terrible angst. They have to find something. They have to go to this place. They have to go on this journey. They, they have to go into this area called Zone, the Zone, because they have to go to this place called The Room. All right? So as soon as they go on this journey, they leave the, this dystopian sepia-tone world. They enter into The Zone, and it, immediately the film goes into color. But it is bizarre and dystopian and post-apocalyptic. Like something terrible had happened. It's never really explained. But something terrible and mysterious had happened in that place. And it was illegal to go in there. But they risk everything to go in there because they have to go to the room. Because when you go to the room, your greatest desires, your deepest desires will be fulfilled. And get this. It's not what you think is your greatest desire. It's not what you tell people is your greatest desire, but your greatest desire. So they go on this this journey, and then when they finally get there, Stalker, who is actually the guide for these two, he leads them to this place, leads them to this door, and he tells them, the moment you go through that door, direct quote here, your most cherished desire will come true, the one that has made you suffer most. He takes him to the door and leaves to them. They have to actually walk through the door. And so they come to the door. And here's what happens, though. When writer, professor, when they come to the door, when they have this opportunity to to open the door and see their most cherished desire, the one they've suffered for most um, be fulfilled, they, they suddenly pause. They freeze. Like Suddenly, it's like they don't know what's on the other side of that door. Like They aren't so sure they're willing to face their deepest desires. And I won't ruin the movie for you because I know you're all going to want to run out and watch it. But it begs the question, the point of the movie is to beg this question, what would you do? Like you're standing there in front of that door. Do you really want to go through that door? What would you find on the other side of the door? Not what do you think is your deepest desire? Not what do you tell other people? What do you put forward as your deepest desire? But what is truly your deepest desire? What is driving you? And this leads to a much bigger, bigger question about desire. Like our lives are driven by desire. Whether it's animalistic desires like thirst and hunger and sex and not being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Or it's those more complex desires like autonomy, mastery, beauty. Our lives are driven by desire from our first breath to our last. We want, it's what we do. 
And so take away desire and you take away a will to live. You take away a reason to get out of bed. You take away desire and our world would freeze. It would just stop moving ahead as we know it. Like, I don't know why you're here right now, but I know that you're here because you want something. And maybe it's you want to meet God or encounter God. Maybe it's you want to worship. Maybe it's you want to see your friends. Maybe it's you like our donuts. Maybe it's you like the music. Maybe you're trying to please your spouse, or maybe you're trying to just drag your kids along. I don't know why you want to be here, but I do know something you want. That's why you're here. Everything we do is preceded by desire. Every good thing and every bad thing, every thought-out action and every knee-jerk reaction. Everything you do that you're like, where did that come from? There's a desire behind it. Now, this is not just the stuff of like Russian art film and psychology. This is the stuff of the Bible. So what's the, um, the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. God says, you better be so, so careful that you desire. The Apostle Paul says, like, so what's the difference between someone whose life is united with God and a person who's alienated from God? According to the Apostle Paul, it has something to do with, get this, desires. Listen to this. For the flesh, this, this selfishness, this inward propensity to, to just do things for yourself, it desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit, capital S, God's Spirit, desires what is contrary to the flesh, that everything I do, Every activity I take, every word that comes out of my mouth, every choice I make underneath that lay a desire that shapes me, propels me, forms me. In some sense, my desires tell my story of who I am and where I'm going and what I'm doing. My desires shape every step of my journey, and they shape every step of your journey as well. What makes this infinitely more complex, then, is that we, like writer like professor standing at that door, we don't always know what we want, do we? And sometimes we think we want things that we don't really want. And we have great difficulty sorting this out of whether what we want and why we want it. And we don't, we're not even sure if we do want something deeply and we know that we want something deeply. A lot of times we don't even know why we want it or if we should want it. So Solomon, uh, that great King Solomon, says it this way in the Proverbs. He says, the intentions of a person's heart are deep waters. I love that picture, like deep waters. Like, um, just imagine this deep, deep well. And if you look at it, you see the water on top, and you can see the surface level, but you have no idea what's going on in the depths. He says, your heart's like that. Jeremiah cranks this up a few notches and says this in chapter 17 of Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That our heart, Jeremiah says, is an incurable liar. It's going to tell you things that it doesn't really mean over and over and over again. Which brings us to Christmas. This time of year, all of this conversation about desire um, becomes painfully like in your face, obvious, um, these problems of like, we don't know what we want. We think we know what we want and we want the wrong things. All of that to anyone who has just an ounce of self-awareness, it becomes painfully obvious. Hundreds of millions of Americans are going to be asked the question, what do you want for Christmas? 
And we're going to search our hearts and think about what would fulfill me, what would satisfy me, what would make me happy. And there are basically two guides that come along, two, your own personal stalker, if you would, from the Russian art film, who's going to guide you to that door to fulfill your greatest wishes. And, And the one is this giant, faceless, soulless, industrial complex we call American consumerism, right? They're going to spend billions, with a B, billions of dollars to to subconsciously influence you to buy the stuff to tell you what you really want is our product. Hundreds of billions of dollars will be spent. Just last night, we went to the King of Prussia Mall, which is a cultural experience, friends. And we're standing wasting time in front of, um, uh, we're in Old Navy. And uh, we go in there, and my son asks, because we just waste time while the girls shop, and he says, why are there big pictures of people everywhere? And, and I said, now nah, nah, I want you to pay attention to this. Um, they spend, they spend, not just Old Navy, but businesses spend hundreds of millions of dollars, billions maybe, to, to take pictures of beautiful people having great fun as they wear their clothes. And then they hang that in front of you. Now listen to the music. I said, listen, listen. What's it sound like? It's like, well, it's kind of nice. I was like, yeah. So how do you think they want to make you feel right now? He's like, I guess they want me to feel happy. I was like, that's right. Because if you buy their product, you'll be happy. Do you believe that? He's like, no. (laughs) Good boy. Good boy. But that's a lie, right? You just, you know, one t-shirt away from being happy. One car away. One house away. One vacation away from being happy. That's the promise. But there's a the guides, um, the ancient Near Eastern guides. They go by the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they want to guide us on a different journey. They have a different thing. They too say, we know the way to find the thing you're really looking for. We know the way. We know like the thing that you can't even put into words, and you might not even know in your own heart yet. We know that. His name is Jesus. And man, it is a totally different way. It is comically different than what America tells us today. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to go on this journey with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we're going to explore this question, what do you want? Like, really? Not what do you say you want, what do you want other people to think you want, but what do you want? Our text for today is going to be Mark chapter 10. It'll be Mark chapter 10, 17 through 52. And, and we're going to, in this passage, we're going to encounter these three, like, vignettes, these, like, these little scenes in which people encounter Jesus. And, and just to set the, the scene here, Jesus is walking. These are the last three stories in the Gospel of Mark before he enters into Jerusalem. And then we enter into traditionally what's known as the Passion Week, where he goes into Jerusalem and then he's going to die on the cross. So we're on a journey with Jesus. We're headed somewhere. He's taking us somewhere, and he's going to stop right before we get there. And he wants to talk about our desires and three different scenes, three different ways. And as you enter into the story, you find that this story is not just about these three, the, the, three, the people involved in these three scenes, but really we are invited into this, that Mark wants us to come along on the journey with him. He wants us to be prepared to follow Jesus into Jerusalem to his death so that we can be follow him to his resurrection. First scene, starts in chapter 10, verse 17. 
It reads like this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So question, real question here. What does the man want? What does the man want? Eternal life. This is not a trick question. The man wants eternal life. That's what he wants. And is that a good thing? Yes, that's a good thing. You should want that. And we don't even, we don't even have to explore what eternal life means there. There's lots we could say. We don't need to because we know he sees something in the life of Jesus and he says, I want that. That's a good thing. He wants a life like Jesus has. That's enough. And we can see that he's sincere, or at least he believes he's sincere. He runs to Jesus, he falls on his knees, and he begs, like, how can I get what you have? If, if we stopped, full stop right here, you'd say, that is absolutely beautiful. May we all do that. May we follow this man, chase up to Jesus, run after him, fall on our knees, and beg, I have to have what you have. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And then he starts going through them like, uh, don't murder, honor your father and mother, no other gods before me. He's just going through the Ten Commandments there. And, and, and then the guy is like, teacher, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. And again, right now, we have no reason to not believe this guy. This guy is good. He's done everything he could to walk in the way of God, to follow the path of God to follow the Old Testament law. So he, he desires a good thing. He's been walking and letting that desire follow his path his whole way around. But then look at verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That like wrecks me every time. Jesus looked at him. And what's about to happen is not because Jesus is angry. It's not because he wants to hurt the guy. Not because he wants to push the guy away. It's because he loves him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Which brings us to the question, um, what's the man want? What's the man want? Yeah. Notice, he wants what Jesus has, and he sincerely believes that he wants what Jesus has, until Jesus points out the cost of what it'll take to have what he has. And then he discovers something about himself in that moment. When Jesus loves him, he discovers, I want something else more. Jesus says, you can have what you most want. You can have it. It's yours. And he walks away sad. It's almost as if the man was completely unaware of how much he loved and desired his own great wealth until he had that interaction with Jesus. It's almost like he had to have that conversation with Jesus to see himself to see his own desires. It's almost like in coming to Jesus, it opened up something so that he could actually recognize his own desires. Now, isn't that interesting? After this scene, Jesus then goes into his famous um, camel through the eye of the needle speech, which I won't go into now, but if you don't know it, you should read it. 
And then he stops everything, and the disciples are there with him, and he has this teachable moment, so he says, stop. Let me tell you where this journey is going. Like the guy, he wanted wealth. Let me tell you, if you follow me with your desires, if you want to follow me, let me tell you where this journey is going. He says, I'm going to be condemned, mocked, spit upon, flogged. They're going to kill me. No question here. I'm telling you, they're going to kill me, murder me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. That's where this journey is going. That's where we're headed. And then right after that, we get to the second episode, verse 35. James and John, these are two followers of Jesus, men who've been following Jesus for three years of their lives, left everything behind. Like he said to the rich young ruler, they left everything behind to follow Jesus. These are good guys. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That is a... That is a bold request. Jesus turns to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? Now get this, get this. This is the moment you open up the package. Ah, I got the gold ticket to Willy Walker's factory. <laughs> this is it. Jesus looks at you straight in the face and says, what do you want me to do for you? This is it. He's like, you break out the list. Well, where do I start? I've got a few things. I was hoping you would ask this. And so let's see what they want. Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. They want to be great like Jesus. With Jesus, they want to be great, truly great. Now, I want you to hear this. This is not necessarily bad. They want to be like Jesus. The same. The other guy wanted to have the life of Jesus, eternal life. They want to be great like Jesus. This is a good thing. We should want to be like Jesus. Even in this way, we should want to rule like Jesus. We should want to look like Jesus. We should want to sit with him in his glory. We should want to be near Jesus. This is a good thing. But look how Jesus responds. You don't know what you're asking. I know when I was a kid, I was told that all your prayers are answered one of three ways. Yes, no, maybe. But I would like to submit to you. There's another category where God looks at you and says, you have no idea what you're talking about. I think he answers most of my prayers that way. You don't know what you're asking. You're so stupid. Uh, Yes, so. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Jesus is saying this in his very Jesus way. In order to become great, you have to become nothing. In order to experience the resurrection glory that I'm going to experience, it's through Mocking, being condemned, being beaten, being betrayed, complete selflessness, losing yourself, literally dying, and then glory. Do you want to do that? Do you know where your desires are leading you? That's the way they're leading you. Can you do that? And they say, we can. Yeah, they have no idea. And Jesus is kind of him. He says, you will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. He's, he sees, when I die and rise from the dead, you will be my disciples. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, Acts chapter 2, they are going to be sent out. And eventually these two guys are going to suffer for Jesus. And they're literally going to be, they're going to die for him. They're going to be martyred for him. They will do that and they will become great like Jesus. But he says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And then he stops this teachable moment and says, whoever wants to be great, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be 
slave of all. The way to greatness is through becoming a servant. The journey of your desire to resurrection, to glory, to eternal life, that journey goes through suffering, death, becoming nothing, becoming a servant, and then resurrection. Jesus, he speaks completely plainly. Like his words are absolutely crystal clear. This is how it's going to go. This is what's going to happen to me. And yet James and John, even after they see the rich young ruler, after he walks away, even after Jesus explains, this is where we're going, they can't seem to see what's right in front of their face. And this is where we tap into this major theme that if you follow through the gospel of Mark, this is part of the journey that we're led upon. We realize that the disciples and us and people have struggled seeing what's right in front of their eyes, that there's this theme of blindness that James and John, like so many people we've seen before in this gospel, they are blind. The rich young ruler was blind to his own desires. They are blind to where their desires will lead them. And, And this just leads to this big metaphor of blindness that we all, and I think you guys know this, we've talked about this before, we all have incredible blind spots, right? Like our eyes are not designed by God to focus on everything at once. Have you ever seen a sheep's eye? It's like weird. It's like this long thing that they don't really focus on anything. Like, uh. <laughs> But we are designed to focus on something. And when you focus on something, what happens is you really can't see anything else. You have kind of an idea of it, but your brain compensates for this. And it, and it, it tells you, here's what I think's going on out there. You don't actually see it. And, and, and we can, we can actually, experiment with this. Have you guys ever seen this one? If you stare at any one of the individual footballs on this, you probably have to be closer to the screen to have its full effect. But the other footballs disappear. They literally disappear. And it's one of those things where you're like, what's going on? And you realize, oh, I can only see one thing at a time. Maybe this is probably easier to see. Can you see where the dot is? Oh, wait. (laughs) Yeah, this is just a picture, but this is what our eyes do. They, they can't actually see, so our brain makes up a story to fill the things that we can't see. Maybe spiritual vision is a lot like that. When we get focused on a few things, the things we think are important or better we feel are important, suddenly we can't see everything else. So this seems to be the case in the first two scenes. Like there's this guy who's focused on one part. I want the life that you have, Jesus, but he doesn't realize what that entails. And then there's the disciples over here, James and John. We want your greatness. We want to be great like you, but they don't realize where their desires are leading them. There's this blindness in both cases that they're blind to their own desires. And it takes an encounter with Jesus It takes pouring out their desires before Jesus, before they can even see it or deal with it. Jesus seems to function like the room in Stalker. There's this great revelatory power, not that he fulfills all your wishes, for sure, but he reveals them. I think this is instructive 
about how we need to deal with our desires, that in the Bible you will not find a category for, hey, the best way when you really deeply desire something or think you want something, what you should do is suppress it or deny it. Like you won't find that in the scriptures. Instead, you find these great outcries of desires time and time again, embarrassing outcries of desire before God. Like it's just part of the life of the ancient Hebrews and then and then the Christians throughout the church age, especially in the Psalms. My favorite example of this comes from um, a guy I know, an Anglican priest named um, Chris Webb. He, uh, he was meeting with people one day, and a young woman came to him totally distraught, and she was like a wreck. Um, her boyfriend had just cheated on her, left her, and it was just, she was you know, out of control. And he says, look, first thing first, let, know this, I'm not a counselor. I'm a priest. So I don't, I, I'm not going to fix you. What I do is I help people learn how to pray. So I'll help you pray, okay? And she's like, oh, whatever. Just I need someone to, to listen to me. So they sit down, and he says, okay, let's go through this story. What's happening? She starts pouring out all this, and he discovers very quickly that she's not just hurt. She's angry. And so he pries in this. He's like, so, so it sounds like you might be a little angry. She's like, you bet I'm angry. He's like, well, what would you like to happen to this guy? She's like, well, I wish the same thing that happened to me would happen to him. Like, really? And I wish he was hit by a truck. And she's like, really? But not die. I want him to suffer. And you're like, really? And he's like, this is fantastic. I have just a prayer for you. And she's like, what? I have just a prayer for you. I want you every day to go home, and I want you to pray Psalm 109. Every time you get angry, every time, you just keep that in your back pocket. You get angry, you pray Psalm 109. You pray it out loud. You pray it with venom every day, and then come back and see me in two weeks. She was like, okay. Have you ever read Psalm 109? It is one of the nastiest, angriest things in all of the scripture. It is written, um, listen to this prayer by David, a man after God's own heart. Psalm 109. His prayer is, appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May his children be fatherless. May his children be wandering beggars. May a creditor seize all that he has. He's like, may the IRS audit him. May he get caught in someone turning left into Produce Junction. (laughs) May he suffer. It keeps going. Verse 14. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. Like he just talked about his mom. Like, that is hatred. You don't talk about someone's mom. It's just awful. I mean, the whole thing is just awful. Like, blah, this guy vomiting up his hatred in the middle of God's prayer book, the Psalms. This man after God's own heart vomiting up his hatred. So the girl, she comes back a couple weeks later. And he's like, how did it go? How did Psalm 109 go? And she's like, well, um, I prayed it for a while. And he's like, what do you mean? I mean, didn't you pray it every time you got angry? She's like, yeah. Like, I, I pulled out in the first week. I was so angry. And I was like, man, his mother, bad things happened to her too. And he said, but as, as she went along, she said, she found that she couldn't just couldn't pray it anymore. I don't know, she just wasn't angry anymore. I was like, oh, I see. Hmm. 
And isn't it interesting that God does not lead us to suppress or deny those types of feelings and desires, but instead he encourages, invites us to pour out everything, to vomit up our desires, that the only way we could even know what our desires really are, possibly sort them out, is if we have someone to hear them, someone trustworthy, someone who loves us even though we desire these terrible things, and help us sort them out. Episode three, this right here will be the last teaching of Jesus before he goes into Jerusalem and then ultimately to his death. It starts in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, which is about 15 miles out from Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging so let's, let's set this real quick. There's the rich young ruler, scene number one, this rich guy. He had everything, money, pedigree, education, but he was blind to his own desires. And then we come to James and John, who've been following Jesus for three years. They know the guy. They know the guy. They've had every chance to, to, to understand the truth and to, to know where this is headed and to follow Jesus, and yet they're blind where their desires are actually leading them. And then we come to Bartimaeus, and he's just blind. He's a blind beggar. Every day, someone has to literally lead him by his hand out to the side of the road, and the guy is completely and utterly helpless. He has to beg to all those people who are coming through Jericho, and they head up to Jerusalem. Right then, it's about Passover time, so all these pilgrims, these religious people are passing on that road to go up to Jerusalem to worship God, and he's hoping, he's hoping, he's hoping that if he cries out that some of them might have pity on them. And this is the man we meet. And I want you to notice one thing in the text. Um, what's his name? Bartimaeus, you, you know that. Now, if you flip back in your text and look at verse 17, and you say, okay, there's a rich guy who had all this pedigree and clout and education and authority. Um, what was his name? We don't know, do we? Now, isn't that interesting? Like this guy that everyone back in that time would want to know. He's a somebody, somebody you need to know to get along in that world. Notice God just skips right over his name. He's just some rich guy. But God stops on this man. He says, Bartimaeus, he's someone you need to know. He's not just some blind beggar, not just another beggar along the road. You need to know his name. Interesting. When he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I can um, tell you, in great detail, what Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me means, if you set it into the theological context, I can tell you how it echoes through the Old Testament, those promises that were made. I can tell you about this um, period between the Testaments where this, this idea of the son of David would come and be a healer. We could talk about what have mercy on me, Kyrie eleison, in Greek means, and we could break that apart. But here's the thing. I don't think that's the point. I think the point of this is not to hear some great theological treaty. I think the point is that this is a cry of desperation. Jesus, have mercy on me. Exactly. Here's the deal. Um, if you've never cried out in utter desperation, Jesus, have mercy on me, I can't possibly tell you what this means. 
And if you have, you can't possibly forget it. Many rebuked him, told him to be quiet. Like, be quiet. You're nobody. Jesus is not going to stop for you. He does not care about you. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. That any sense of pride or managing what other people think, that's gone when you're that desperate. Like desperation has that way of doing that to us, that it, that it stops us from really caring about what anyone else thinks. Bartimaeus is desperate. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, came to Jesus. And we get to these words. Same words he said to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Here's your moment. You're standing outside the door. You open that door And your greatest desires are going to be revealed. Do you know what's behind it? The rich man got what he really wanted. James and John learned what it meant to get what they wanted. What do you want? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So again, at this point, I have studied desire, desire formation, desire realization, actualization, all of that. I've studied that for probably 12, 13 years of my life. And I could go into great depths about the neuroscience of it, the psychology of it, um, the experience of it. There's some great stuff in Puritan theology on it, great stuff in the scriptures, and all of that has some value, but I'm pretty sure that's not the point. And I'm pretty sure that's not what you need right now. What we need is not a brilliant explanation, but what we need is an encounter with Jesus. We need to look Jesus full in the face and hear him say to us, What do you want me to do for you? So here's how we're going to finish. Uh, I'm going to give you some space. Again, if you don't know where you're at in your relationship with God, this might seem totally bizarre, like we're going to talk to an ancient Near Eastern dead man. He's not dead, but they're here and there. Um, I'm going to encourage you to just come along so far as your faith will allow you on this. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment of uh, silence, and it's not just silence. I'm hoping God will fill that for you. A moment where I'm going to give you a chance to just breathe and recognize God's presence and to put yourself in a position to actually maybe, possibly, be slightly honest about where your desires are at. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the text, and as I do, I want you to not just hear the text and analyze it, But I want to enter into the text. I want you to see what do you see, hear, smell, feel. Specifically, what does it feel like for Jesus to look you full in the face? What does that feel like? And I want to close with this question. I want to close with you looking at Jesus full in the face, him giving his full attention to you, and asking you, what do you want me to do for you? So let's take a minute. After this, I'll I'll lead us into communion. Let's take a minute, and then I'm going to read the text. But if you would, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and just 
Prepare your hearts for God. And then they came to Jerusalem, or to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him. And told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling to you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. Jesus is here right now. He promised to never leave us. Or forsake us. You have his full attention. What do you want me to do for you? <laughs> 